Today is Palm Sunday when we remember the day Jesus entered into Jerusalem, uh, the triumphal entry, coming in, seated on a colt. We read the prophecy of Zechariah earlier. Now we're going to read Luke's narrative of that event. Um, and as we do so, I want you to begin thinking about your response to the king. Because as we see in this passage, there are very, two very different responses. Let's dive into the text. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of His Word this morning. You know, it's no secret that in our world today, you can pretty much expect that on any issue, half the people will be for it and half will be against it. That division is certainly on display if a politician was to visit a city. You could pretty much count on it that if a politician were to visit any town in America, 50% of the people would be carried a placard that said, Welcome, and the other 50% would be carrying a placard that said, Go away. Just the way it is. Same was true when Jesus walked the earth. When he was born, he came into this world with angels rejoicing. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth with men with whom he is well pleased. Shepherds rejoicing that he has come. Then, you read of the other 50%. King Herod, who is not so thrilled that the Savior has been born. What was true at the beginning of Jesus' life on this earth was also true as he approached the end. As he comes into Jerusalem with his crucifixion drawing nigh, he instructs two of his disciples to ride into town and get a colt for him to ride on. His entrance riding on that colt serves as a dividing line in many ways. As we will see in a few moments, it serves as a dividing line between belief and disbelief, between obedience or disobedience, between acceptance 
or rejection. Because when the king comes to town, his arrival calls for a response. We see two instances of these responses here in the text. The response of the disciples and the response of the Pharisees. And their actions, their response to King Jesus should call for us to examine our response. How are we responding to this one who rides into town on the back of a donkey? Will our response be one of commitment to the king? This response is demonstrated in verses 29 through 38 in the response of the disciples. Now, it's easy to talk about having a commitment to Christ, but the real proof of commitment, I believe, comes in three aspects that are on display in the response of the disciples. What does commitment look like? Well, the first thing is this. Commitment looks like faithful obedience. You see this is in verses 29 through 34. Verse 29 sets the geographical context. He drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany. Now these are two small villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I believe Bethphage was about two miles out. Bethany approximately five miles. So he's making his way into Jerusalem. Luke has been building up to this point. And now as he gets to the mount called of Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his disciples ahead into the village where he tells them specifically, you will find a colt, untie it, and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, let me chase a little bit of a rabbit trail at this point. There are subtle clues in this passage to the divinity of Jesus. First, I want you to notice that he rides into this city on a colt, a donkey, that no one has ever ridden on. Notice how Jesus emphasizes in verse 30, 30 on which no one has ever sat. That's a miracle. If you've ever been to a rodeo or ever watched a, a video of a cowboy trying to sit on a horse or a donkey that has never been ridden, well, you're in for a rocky time. So Jesus is able to sit on this donkey without it bucking, without it broncoing, without it doing anything. I just wonder if Jesus may have walked by it and leaned into its ear and said and whispered, it's me. It's okay. No problem. The donkey knew. The other thing that comes into question is this, about the procuring of the colt. Was it prearranged or was it miraculous? Some argue that Jesus had made prearrangements, kind of like renting a car. That somewhere in the weeks ahead, he had sent word on ahead and had made arrangements that somebody would be waiting there with the donkey so that all the disciples had to do was to go in and get it. Or... Was it an act of sovereign, miraculous foreknowledge and power? I tend to think it was the latter. Because if the cult was prearranged, why did he need to prepare the disciples on what to say if they were asked? If it was prearranged, all they had to do was to walk in and say, Hey, I'm here to pick up the cult. Jesus laid down his deposit three weeks ago. That's not what you see. Jesus tells them specifically where it will be that no one's ever written on it and what to say if someone asks them why they're taking it. I think supernaturally Jesus arranged it. He knew where the cult would be and he was working ahead of time. What draws my attention in this passage is the obedience of the disciples. 
You notice the two went and obeyed, even though they had no idea exactly what they were doing other than getting a donkey for him to ride in on or how it would fall into place. They were simply obeying because they were told to. This struck home to me because of something that happened when I began dating my wife Jody in the mid-1980s. Yes, that long ago. When we had started dating and I was very interested in her, one summer day or spring day, she had invited me to go with her family to the Knoxville Zoo. They lived in Chattanooga, picked me up in Athens. We drove up to Knoxville, and we got to the zoo that Saturday. It was packed. There was not a parking place anywhere. We were driving around the, the parking lot trying to find a place to park. Well, Clarence, her father, was driving, and he came to a spot where there was a barrier, one of these sawhorse barriers, and on the other side of the barrier, there were plenty of parking places. Clarence stopped the car in front of it. The hood of the car pointed right at the barrier, Looked back at me and said, Mark, why don't you get out and we'll go move that? Yes, sir. I get out like Gomer Pyle, walk up there, pick it up, move it. He pulls through. Then I walk up to the car. He stops me. Move it back. Which was quite stressful because there was a car behind him going to follow him in. So here I go back with the barrier, set it back into place. The driver of that car is going, I don't like this. He told me, I like his daughter. What am I supposed to say? I think I may love her. He tells me to move the barrier. I'm moving it. And I thought, isn't that what these disciples are doing? I don't understand why we're doing it. I don't know what we're going to encounter. But Jesus said to go get a donkey. So that's what we're going to do. Faithful obedience. You notice I didn't say perfect obedience. You can be faithful in your obedience without being perfect. You look at the commands Jesus gave us. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Don't do that perfectly. What I want to do is to be faithful in saying, Lord, help me. When Jesus said, cast your burdens upon me, I don't always do that, but I strive and I say, Lord, I'm struggling. Help me to do this. Lord, you told me to seek first your kingdom. I want to do that faithfully. Help me to do that. And then when the Spirit moves us to act in a specific way, whether it be to witness, to pray, to visit, to write a word of encouragement, yes, there are times that we fail, but we want to come back and say, Lord, help me to be faithfully obeying. That's how we respond to the King. Faithful obedience will also lead to a second mark of commitment. Voluntary sacrifice. Notice what the disciples do once they've got the cult to Jesus. This is found in verses 35 and 36. They brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. So now their outward cloak is serving as a saddle for Jesus to use. But then they go a step further. Verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. That was an act of giving homage. That's like laying out the red carpet in front of someone. But I want you to think about the cost of this to the disciples. These are their cloaks. These were not wealthy men from what we can tell of the Gospels. But yet, in an act of worship, they take their outer cloak and they lay them on this nice paved road that was always swept and clean. No, they're throwing their cloaks down on a dusty road that was used by horses, mules, and camels. You think they're wanting those cloaks back? Lord, I'm giving you what I've got as an act of worship. Voluntary act of worship. Giving what we have. Why? As an act of worship and homage to the Savior because He has need of it. I have a feeling that many times this happened in the Gospels. 
I'm always struck by the story of the Gadarene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Jesus lands on the edge of the Sea of the Gennesaret. And as he gets out, he's met by a man possessed by many demons. The demons engage in a conversation with Jesus. The demons had, had, had absolutely destroyed this man's life. He was isolated, living among the tombs, cutting himself. The, the, the people would try to chain him. He would break the chains. And then Jesus, with a word, cast the demon host out. They flee into a herd of pigs. And the pigs immediately run off the edge of a cliff. Because not even swine can tolerate Satan. The shepherd is scared to death. The pig's keeper runs into town, gets the people, and come. they come to see what's going on. It says when they got there, they found this man who had been possessed by demons in his right mind and fully clothed. Where did he get the clothes? Now, Jesus could have automatically said, yeah, you look like a 42 long. Boom, there it is. Or the disciples. Could it be that maybe as John is looking, he says, you know what, it looks like my t I've got an extra tunic that would fit him. Maybe Peter looked down and he said, you know what, he looks like he's about a size 9. That's what I wear. Bartholomew may have said, you know what, I've got a cloak. Thaddeus may have said, I've got a belt. It could be that the man was clothed out of the voluntary giving, the voluntary sacrifice of the twelve. It's amazing. I think the Lord answers so many prayers to the voluntary sacrificial giving of his people. Heard of an evangelist that one time visited L.A. to speak at a ladies group or World Day of Prayer. As he arrived at the meeting, there were about a thousand ladies that had gathered for the conference. And before he got up to speak, the leader, the chairman of the event, read a letter from a missionary in Venezuela who said, We need in Venezuela $5,000 to build an extension to the hospital because they can't handle all the patients. She looked at the evangelist and said, Reverend, would you please lead us in prayer that the Lord would provide for our sister in Venezuela? The evangelist looked at her and said, No, I won't do it. Of course, she was shocked. But he said, what I will do is I will take out my wallet and whatever I have in my wallet, I will lay on the pulpit right now. He said it was a good day to do it. He had two twenty-five in his wallet. $2.25, that is. Put it on the pulpit. Then he looked at the chair, chair lady and said, now I want you to do the same. She was shocked. She got her pocketbook out, pulled out all the cash she had. She had $110, laid it down. He said, now we've got $112.25. Then he looked at the lady on the front row and he said, you're next. And then one by one, person by person, they came, each just laying out what they had in their wallet that day cash-wise. At the end of the day, they had collected $7,000. The evangelist said, isn't it ludicrous to think of asking God for $5,000 when he's already provided $7,000? Could it be that sometimes the very answer to the prayers that we lift up, God's already placed in our grasp. He's just waiting for us to be willing to let go and to give sacrificially. You see, commitment is shown by faithful obedience, sacrificial giving, and then jubilant worship. Now, I know this is the part that makes us as Baptists a little bit nervous. Why do they get so excited? You look at verses 37 and 38, and you notice that, look at what happens. They start breaking out in praise. Now, we don't know how large the group was. We know it starts with the disciples as he's drawing near the whole multitude of his disciples. So apparently, more than the twelve, 
They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So they began praising God, and then other disciples join in with a loud voice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So notice where their, their, their praise starts. It starts with the experience that they have had of what God has done in Jesus. Their worship is jubilant with, with summa, summa cum laude, summa great praise, lots of great praise. Because they had seen in Jesus the hand of God. Lord, I praise you. I have seen water turned into wine. Lord, I praise you. I have seen the lame walk. Lord, I praise you because the dead has been brought back to life. They start by praising God for what he has done. That's a place where we start with our praise and thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you for providing what I have needed each day. Lord, I thank you for providing the strength I need. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of illness, you are faithful. Lord, I thank you for saving my soul. But notice how then their praise turns from the experience to the doctrine, the truth of who he is. Verse 38, they start quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the interesting thing is, is that that Psalm 118, the psalm they quote, was sung whenever the king would enter into the temple. The king is coming into worship. So by applying it to Jesus, they are saying that he is the king, the king, the Messiah, the Lord, and that there is no other. Blessed is the king who comes comes in the name of the Lord. He is our Savior. And notice from there they move into peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now glory in the highest we can understand. Glory in the highest realm to God. But peace in heaven? The peace in heaven is not because there was angelic war taking place. Peace in heaven refers to our peace with God. We must remember that our sin creates a barrier between us and God. That prior to salvation, we are enemies of God because of our sin. That Jesus is the peace of God. He died on the cross to secure our salvation so we can be reconciled with God. He is our peace. So because of that, they worship him saying, here is the king who has brought about peace in heaven so that their worship is an overflow of joy. Now I understand that not every moment of worship is going to be overflowing with joy. There are times we come in and I know we're tired. Times we've had a hard week and it's difficult. Times where there's a, a solemn aspect to our worship. But there must be times of joy if we know the Lord who is the King and the Sovereign God. There must be joy just simply because believer, you've been saved from hell. I had the privilege of growing up attending two very different types of churches. My teenage years, I attended First Church in Athens, Tennessee. Drawn to it, honestly, there wasn't a great spiritual reason other than my friends went there. That was it. But the Lord used that church in a mighty way in my life to help me grow theologically. But First Athens was a very liturgical church. They had the order of service printed in the bulletin. I mean the order of service to the point where the pastor will now walk three steps forward, turn left, and stand behind the pulpit. The church I grew up in as a child was the exact opposite. The church I grew up in was a small rural church where the choir rehearsal consisted of this. At about 10.30, the music director would stand up and say, Anybody want to sing in the choir today? Come on up. Very loose structured. And it was a church that was a little bit more expressive in its worship. 
Now, many of you may have never experienced a church like that. It's an experience. We would have those moments where a person would, and here's the theological term to express it, get happy. Where the Spirit would just come over them, and they would stand up, and I mean lift their arms and shout. It was a little bit Baptocostal. And I remember one lady, Mamma Jackson, to this day, I don't know who her grandchildren were. I think it was the entire church. We all called her Mamma Jackson. She was the stereotypical older lady. Hair pulled back in a bun, about this tall, walked a little bit like this. But brothers and sisters, I tell you, every time victory in Jesus was sung, she came out of that seat and she jumped up like Michael Jordan. And she would walk the aisle saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It was only on victory in Jesus. Why? Because in her heart she'd had an experience with the Lord. Church, there are times we need like that. Where we need to let loose a little bit and say, thank you, Jesus. But you know what? That's where we, often we encounter the other side of it. The Pharisees. See, that's the other response. They're only given two verses, really only one verse. Some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. They could have attached themselves to Jesus just to keep an eye on him, could have attached himself just to, to learn a little bit about him, but they weren't happy with this display. Could have been they were afraid. They were afraid of what such a display would do to the Roman government, and the Roman government could come down upon them and cause a whole host of problems. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was skepticism. I'm not sure who this Jesus is. But either way, look at how they respond. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to stop. Fear or skepticism drives them to want to squelch worship, to squelch the revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus' answer is classic. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, under that is a very veiled insult to the Pharisees because he was basically saying the rocks are smarter than you are because they understand. They understand that if worship's not taking place, they must worship. This begs the question, what's keeping you from worshiping him? What's keeping you from following him as your savior? Could it be fear? Fear of what others might think. Fear of what the cost might be. Jesus said there was a cost. And you look around at your life and you think, there are things I know that the Lord would not have me pursue. I would ask you to weigh those things against eternity. Weigh them against eternity. Others, it may be on the skeptical end. There's doubt about who Jesus is. And if that's you today, I want you to know that Jesus is big enough to handle your questions. He's truth. And I could stand up here and give a whole list of, of evidences and proofs as to who Jesus is. But I would ask you to examine your heart to ask, is the issue really faith? G.K. Chesterton wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. It's not that people try Jesus and leave. It's that they become fearful of the difficult nature of following Christ. And that's where I tell you the difficult nature is met by the strength of Christ. 
So when the king came to town, he called for a response. The response of the disciples, commitment, faithful obedience, voluntary sacrifice, jubilant worship, or the response of the Pharisees, fear, skepticism. Today I want to invite you to respond to our Lord. He's coming again. At that point it will be too late to decide. The time for response is now. I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the gracious love that you have given us. And I thank you, Lord, that even when we struggle in worshiping you as we should, when we struggle in being obedient, when we struggle in sacrificing, Lord, you are still faithful. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that today your spirit would work among us, that we would not let a spirit of fear or skepticism keep us from you, but that we would seek you with all of our heart. And that we would know your grace. Lord, I pray for the one today who feels like they've gone so far, your grace could never reach them. Lord, I pray for them especially that your love would overwhelm them right now. I pray for the ones struggling in their faith. They can remember times where they used to be like the psalmist who said, I led the procession to worship, but now, Lord, their hearts are broken. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to them. To remind them that even in the difficult times, you are still God and you still love them. Father, I pray that you would help us to love you more. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. Would you please join me in standing? And as Chris leads us, if you need to come, please, the altar is open.